Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, we have blind spots and we have biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give you a foundation of understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics may seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. of coffee and the barely pre-dawn light shining in through our windows yeah or something like that it feels like yeah. that it might be a minor exaggeration for no, you guys we don't exaggerate we super here. early we don't exaggerate never. here never but if you haven't listened to last week's episode we recommend that you do because it's going to set a lot of the the context for the discussion this week we discuss what Antifa is, what Antifa is not, and it's important to understand the nuance of that conversation. But the short, short story is that what the media calls Antifa is a loosely affiliated network of individuals and groups that share a similar perspective, that don't shy away from violence, but don't meet the legal definitions of a terrorist organization. Or really even any organization. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not an organization. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But I think in order to really understand the history of the movement that we're calling Antifa today, and to set the stage for what we're going to talk about in the next episode, we really have to go back to what a lot of historians consider to be the birth of fascism, which is post-World War I Italy and Benito Mussolini. Um, and that's what we're going to spend most of this episode talking about. And then uh, we'll also get into you know, what we're calling the values and the tenets of the movement. But, well, well, we'll talk about it when we get there. Yeah, I was surprised, I will say, when we were researching the history on this, at how far back the history goes. Because I really did think of this as more of a 21st century phenomenon. But that, it turns out, is far, far from the truth. Yeah, I, I was shocked at how much history there is and how much direct tie there is to what we see happening 
today. I mean, I should yeah, right I should now. never be shocked, right, at the direct ties between history and what's happening today. Durr. But <laughs> it's like they're related or something. I know. It's weird. Right? But I didn't I didn't expect to see some of the same language and some of the same physical demonstration tactics. The exact same phrases. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it's a interesting and and slightly damning mirror. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even more so. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go all the way back here. We're going to start with what is possibly the first organized anti-fascist group, the Arditi del Popolo in Italy. That's um, in Italian. That means the people's daring ones. That group was founded in 1921 with a commitment to fight the increasingly violent faction of black shirts that was soon to be supported by the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Um, that the group, the the People's Daring Ones, brought together unionists and anarchists and socialists and communists and republicans and former former army officers to combat Mussolini and the Black Shirts' fascist ideology. And what was kind of interesting about them, what was unique at the time, is that that group chose to cross political and social lines to strengthen their cause. There there was one thing that all of these different groups of people agreed on. And they decided to come together rather than to fight separately within their own little silos. Um, and that's that's probably good because, especially in Italy, that fight against fascism would prove to be a very long fight. Uh, once he was in power, Mussolini began a policy of Italianization <laughs> that amounted basically to cultural genocide for the Slavians and the Croats who lived in northeastern Italy. He banned their languages, he closed their schools, he made them change their names to sound more Italian. And then, so in, in order to fight him and this Italianization, the Slovenes and the Croats organized themselves and then allied with the anti-fascist forces in 1927. So you already had that, that already patchwork group that was growing, then became even more patchwork across racial lines and even bigger in 1927. Of course, the state responded by doing what fascist states do, and they formed a secret police. Uh, the Organization for the Vigilance and Repression of Anti-Fascism, mm. OVRA, which did all the things that a secret police force does. It surveilled Italian citizens. It raided opposition organizations. It murdered suspicious or suspected anti-fascists. And it even spied on and blackmailed the Catholic Church, which, you know, go big or go home. Uh, yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right? The battle between anti-fascists and the OVRA in Italy would continue for another 18 years after that until an anti-fascist partisan who used the alias Colonello Valerio shot Mussolini and his mistress with a submachine gun in 1945. As I was researching and typing that out, I was like, oh, all the talk that we heard this summer and fall about anti-American this and anti-American that and... It just, huh, huh. Yep. gross. Yep. Of course, Italy wasn't the only place that fascism took root. Uh, fascist ideologies began to spread across Europe. And so did anti-fascism or anti-fascist activism. The leftists of Germany's Roder... This is what I get for not reading ahead. You jerk. Okay, I don't speak German, so we're just going to go for this. The leftists of Germany's Roter Frankkampferbund uh, gave us the famous clenched fist salute. 
used as the symbol of their fight against intolerance. In 1932, the RFB, because I'm not pronouncing the whole name again, became known as anti-fascist... Gosh, this is not even any better. Became known as anti-fascistische... Woo! Woo! Action. Or action. Or Antifa for short. They fought Nazi anti-Semitism and homophobia under flags bearing the same red and black logo that Antifa groups wave today. The fist of protest was first raised by German workers, uh, but would go on to be raised by the Black Panthers, Black American sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics, and Nelson Mandela, among many others. In Spain, anti-fascism took center stage in a civil war, and the Republican popular militia was organized much like modern Antifa groups, allowing people of all walks of life to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who would otherwise be their adversaries against a common enemy. Overall, 40,000 volunteers from Europe, Africa, the Americas, and China fought together as anti-fascist comrades against Franco's coup in Spain. And interestingly enough, that included black Americans. Yeah, black Americans at that time were still excluded from equal treatment in the U.S. military, but they served as officers in the brigades of Americans who traveled abroad to fight against fascism in Spain. In 1936, there were no black fighter pilots in the United States. Yet three black pilots, James Peck, Patrick Roosevelt, and Paul Williams, volunteered to fight the fascists in the Spanish skies. Here in the U.S., segregation had prevented them from achieving their dreams of air combat, but in Spain, they found equality in the anti-fascist ranks. Eluard Luchel McDaniels traveled to Spain in 1937 to fight fascists in the Spanish Civil War, and he became known as El Fantastico for his prowess with a grenade. Yes. Right? That is the best nickname. Woo! The Fantastic. McDaniel, speaking with historian Peter Carroll, noted that the enemy that he felt that he was fighting in Spain felt like the same enemy that he fought at home. He said, I saw the invaders of Spain were the same people that I've been fighting all my life. I've seen lynching and starvation, and I know my people's enemies. And McDaniels was absolutely not alone in seeing anti-fascism and anti-racism as intrinsically connected. The anti-fascists of today are heirs to almost a century of struggle against racism here in America. In October 1936, Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists attempted to march through Jewish neighborhoods in London. However, Mosley's 3,000 fascists and the 6,000 policemen who accompanied them found themselves outnumbered by somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000 anti-fascist Londoners who turned out to stop them. Local children were recruited to roll their marbles under the hooves of police horses, while Irish dock workers, Eastern European Jews, and leftist workers stood side by side to block the marcher's progress. They raised their fists and chanted, No passaran, they shall not pass, which was the slogan of the Spanish militia and they sang in Italian and German and Polish. The turnout on Cable Street became a symbol of the power of a broad anti-fascist alliance in shutting down fascist hate speech on the streets. During World War II, it seemed that the entire Western world 
was united against political fascism, while still maintaining policies of white supremacy, Christian hegemony, and colonization that marginalized anyone who was not a white heterosexual Christian man. But that's another conversation. But once the war was over, the fight against fascist ideologies once again returned to the people in mass. Men like Mosley returned to stumping their anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic rhetoric, and newly organized anti-fascist groups fought back by any means necessary, including literally pushing over the stage he was standing on. <laughs> Talk about deplatforming. Right. In 1980s Germany, anti-fascism found its revival when young people raised their fists and waved their flags to protest the infiltration of the punk music scene by Nazi skinheads. They squatted in empty buildings, forming their own counterculture communities and organization. And of course, we've seen anti-fascist movements at work here in the United States. Now, it goes without saying that America has its own sordid history of racism, anti-Semitism, and homophobia, and on and on. But when we talk about Antifa work here, we have to understand that those ideologies form the context in which this work has taken and is taking place. From all the research that we did, it, it would appear that the credit for organized anti-fascist work in the United States, as we know it today, should go to a group known as the Baldies a band of seven teenagers, hmm. one black, one native, and Latino, and five white, in Minneapolis. The Baldies identified as skinheads, but not the version that American popular culture has given us. Skinhead culture originated in the streets of England back in the 1960s and was embodied by tough, working-class, white, and black kids. It wasn't a racist thing. It wasn't a fascist thing. It kind of got perverted especially when it came to the United States, and that's, that's what these kids were, were fighting against. In the U.S., the look had been adopted by neo-Nazis and racists who were gaining really high-profile media attention, and the Baldies were absolutely determined to take that identity back. So when the White Knights, a group that I grew up hearing about because I'm from Minneapolis, um, and I had no idea that it had to do with all of this stuff, but I, I grew up hearing about the White Knights, when they uh, when they begin instigating violence at a local at local punk shows and at youth gatherings and concerts, the Baldies decided that it was up to them to hold the line against these racists. And so, for the next few years, violent confrontation between the two groups was the name of the game. And then, in 1989, the Baldies, uh, after having recruited many others and fought really hard, uh, declared that Minneapolis was officially a Nazi-free zone. They had done all their work and they had run these terrible people off. Um, and then they invited other anti-racist skinheads and their allies from across the Midwest to come to Minneapolis to organize some sort of an official front against this imposition on their culture. Original member of the Baldies, Mick Crenshaw, said, We were very self-critical every step of the way, but we were very clear that we were a political force and an organization that was very consciously anti-racist. So at that point in time, more than 100 people came from Chicago and Detroit and Milwaukee and other cities, and they agreed to form a new anti-racist movement that would share information and ideas and put boots on the ground in places battling this neo-Nazi surge. There were anarchists and communists and people who thought they were patriots, almost like a right-wing perspective, Crenshaw said, but 
the common thread was their commitment to anti-racism. And then they also agreed that the movement would be rooted in action and not theory. This group, as it, as it eventually formed, came to be known as anti-racist action. And it's considered by Mark Bray. Remember, we talked about him last episode. He's literally the guy who wrote the book on Antifa. Um, it's considered by him to be the precursor to the modern Antifa groups that we know in the United States. Their predominant work mostly involved following punk and skidhead bands on tour, uh, roadies, and confronting any racist groups that attended the shows or basically dared to show up in the same space. They would go into these cities where these these bands were having their concerts, and anytime they saw somebody that they, they thought was a neo-Nazi skinhead, they would basically pick a fight. So, um, <laughs> All right. it's boots on the ground. Um, yeah. But like many movements, and like we talked about last week, all of these different groups really remained highly decentralized and fairly autonomous under the general banner of the ARA. The reach of the ARA spread west as chapters sprung up in Los Angeles and San Diego and Portland, Vancouver and and Colorado. All these chapters and their Midwestern counterparts were represented at the first ARA network gathering held in Portland, Oregon, at the same time as the civil trial of white Aryan resistance founder Tom Metzger and his son John, boo, who were eventually found liable for their role in the murder of uh, Mulugeta Sara, an Ethiopian immigrant beaten to death by Portland boneheads in <laughs> 1988. And like, I'm just going to interject that that's not just a like a mean name an insult yeah that is that is one of the terms that the that the i guess true skinheads used for these neo-nazi skinheads they called them boneheads oh okay i guess it it kind of has the uh the double meaning because they're you know still bald but you don't want to call them skinheads when you're trying to retake that ideological name, I guess. Yeah. And also it means they're idiots, and I love that too. Very good. In uh, 1994, the first conference of the Midwest Anti-Fascist Network was held in Columbus, Ohio. The conference was called by Columbus's ARA group to help coordinate and sustain the constant protest against Klan rallies throughout the Midwestern U.S. At that meeting, the ARA took on its most organized form. The first known organization to use the name Antifa in the United States was the aforementioned Rose City Antifa group. We talked about them, we touched on them a few times in the last episode, mainly to use them as an example that people can sort of identify. The group was formed by Portland locals in 2007 as an ad hoc committee to oppose a neo-Nazi music festival called Hammerfest that was to be held in Portland which they did successfully oppose it, that is, not hold the music festival. Right. Drawing on their experiences in North America and outside of the U.S., the group decided there was a continued need to do more formal, organized, anti-fascist work. Originally aligned with the ARA, Rose City Antifa became a part of the Refocused Torch Network in 2013. And what is the Torch Network, I hear you asking? I'd be happy to explain that to you. The Torch Network emerged from the ARA as a means of refocusing. Their website gives us some insight into the change. 
Because of changes in the current political climate, as well as our own political development, our understanding of what fascism is and how it relates to other political entities, such as the working class, capital, and the state, has evolved. We wanted to build a new network that fit our needs and politics, and one that was more relevant and appealing to a new generation of anti-fascists. That was from the Torch Network's website. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, as, as an explanation as to why they they decided to reorganize from the ARA. And, and again, right, this, this network itself consists of a number of autonomous organizing groups whose Really, their only membership qualifications are agreement to the five points of unity that is outlined by the Torch Network and being vouched for by two other network chapters. If we're looking at this objectively, this is as close as anything comes to being capital A proper noun Antifa. But again, it still doesn't meet the qualifications of an organization, especially a terrorist organization that John outlined in, in the previous episode. It is really interesting going through this historical development. And this is a really broad strokes discussion about it. Yeah. There's a lot more nuanced history. You know, obviously we referenced some things that we didn't get into a lot of <clears throat> detail about simply because uh, legitimately this could be its own, not just episode, because it is, but its own like podcast talking yeah. about the development of anti-fascist ideologies uh, concurrently with the rise of fascism. Um, so we kind of tried to distill that development of the ideology and the pathway from World War I to the modern era. And when you look at it from that sort of broad perspective, that high-level overview, you see a lot of very concerning patterns that are cycling, like the growth of groups that are specifically not just, not just defining an other and targeting them, but specifically targeting... Immigrants, mm -hmm. specifically targeting these outgroups that we've seen recently in the modern political era, be targeted by our politicians. And if the discussion of an anti-fascist group is going to going to be a not objective, that's not the right term that I'm looking for. Honest, it needs to consider. Or it needs to explain, rather, why these anti-fascist groups are seeing the things they're seeing. And it's because, from that their perspective, they've seen this all before, historically. Right. This is just one more, one more rotation around the same wheel. Yeah, if, if we go all the way back to Mussolini and, and the, the things that the Italians were starting to see happen that eventually turned into what is basically considered to be the birth of modern fascism, you can, you can pinpoint and pick those, those keywords and those key ideas out across what we see happening in our country. And I would venture to say countries across the world, and I would venture mm. to say throughout history. Yes. I feel like there, this is probably you know one of those really cinematic things where there's always this tension and counter tension on one side or the other. We just have the benefit of history at this point to help us now see it more clearly and and decide what our response needs to be more consciously. Right. And you're, you are right. We are seeing, especially in European nations, but, but 
globally, we're seeing a, a swing of the the pendulum of public opinion move farther ideologically right towards a more nationalistic approach. That's mm -hmm. why we saw Boris Johnson, for example, get elected. We've seen several uh, presidents and prime ministers in, in just Eastern Europe at large who have begun to lock down their borders, focus on a more nationalistic approach. And I, I don't want to give the impression that nationalism is inherently bad, but nationalism is a very steep slope that mm -hmm. gets bad really fast and turns into a, a sort of fanatical devotion as we have seen in our own politics. And there is a fine line between patriotism, which I think is the healthier option of the healthier part of, of nationalism and truly terrible nationalistic ideologies. And when you are looking at the the global patterns, you're seeing that sort of that, that pendulum careen more towards the evil bad part of nationalism right. where we identify the, the other as bad. And instead of saying, well, we want to focus on our people, the focus becomes, well, we want to get rid of every other people, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing that sort of that balance shift in that direction. So, or I should say, not we, but Antifa specifically is seeing that shift and people who lean left ideologically are seeing that shift which is why there's such a quick or, or maybe not quick, but uh, uh, I think violent reaction from certain groups to counter this, especially Antifa. But we also see like progressive ideology actively working against this sort of tilt towards nationalism instead of patriotism. But I think Does it also, yeah, logical? I think it yeah, also makes sorry. sense. Like, <clears throat> We all, because we all learned about that in ninth grade, you know, U.S. history and how how America went through a nationalist phase, and and that's where we got, you know, some of the the bad habits that we still see carried out today. I think, you know, I think any time that we try to assign a morality to some of these um, more objective terms is is when we collectively, as humanity, get into mm. trouble. Um, yeah. I think there is there is space for a nationalist perspective, just like there is space for a globalist perspective. And the magic is in when we come together and compromise and get to meet in the middle and we apply Balancing some of the idea. benefits of nationalism and the benefits of globalism. And we create these societies where where the nations that we live in are well taken care of and well organized. Uh, but we also have positive global impact. And positive yeah. global relationships. But again, like we've talked about so many times, the magic lives in the middle, but the middle is not sexy. Like nobody wants to talk about that because nobody gets worked up about cooperation. Very few people get, get real excited about compromise yeah. in and a good way. It's, I think, in, interestingly, when it comes to this conversation between, I think, globalism and nationalism, I liked juxtaposing those two terms. I think that was a good good uh, way to do that. I don't think, or I, rather, I think what we're going to see moving forward is that it is increasingly difficult to operate on a 
nationalist foothold in this world. You will be, it will be more and more difficult to take an America first approach because of things like the global internet, of things Mm -hmm. like continued infrastructure development between countries, continued trade agreements, continued uh, treaties and organizations and things like the World Health Organization and the UN and the International Criminal Court, all of these things that bind countries together in these different agreements means that you cannot take an action that only impacts your country anymore. And from a national security perspective, that is kind of a good thing because, for example, I was just having this conversation, like China can't knock out our our power grid, our infrastructure, without considering the massive amount of retaliation that's going to occur from all of the United States allies. Mm-hmm. And if the United States tries to operate from a perspective that we are an island, that the that our allies and their opinions don't matter anymore, aren't important, then we are going to give up a lot of strategic leverage mm-hmm. on this global stage and we will be more vulnerable ourselves. So I don't think that the balance, the pendulum will... I don't think it will swing back towards nationalism safely, towards Correct. withdrawing from the global stage. I think that if we pursue that path, we are opening ourselves up to a lot of uh, trouble that Agreed. we don't necessarily have to, have to, which is an interesting topic to get onto when we're talking about the history of Antifa. But <laughs> we digress, as we often do. <clears throat> a little bit. Um, a little bit. Yeah. But uh, it, it really all comes back to that Antifa is not a phenomenon that's in the United States. It is a global movement. It is something that has developed globally. It is something that didn't start here recently, but has deep roots throughout political movements in Europe and the United States over the course of decades. And it would be a mistake to think about Antifa in a vacuum of the 2020 election Mm -hmm. and, and the 2016 election and Charlottesville, and these flash fire issues that we have seen in the past several years that revolve around Antifa. They have, some form of them has always been there and has always been pushing back against the fascist ideology. So you cannot think about them without thinking about the long history. Otherwise, you are not doing a proper analysis of them. You are looking at one very small sliver of a much larger story. Yes, agreed. Um, and, and just, even though we, we kind of have this tendency to Americanize everything, right? We kind of, that's one thing that we do as part of this American exceptionalism thing. We take things and we make them ours and we kind of mm. get this idea that they have always been ours. But we're, we're looking at 100 years this year of documented anti-fascist activism. And so what we can see is that the movements, the values of these organizations across the world for a hundred years have not changed. Yes, they're specialized to their particular culture and the things that are happening at that point in time. Um, But if we're going to discuss Antifa as an adjective, which we kind of agreed in the last episode is, is very often the most acceptable definition of Antifa is, is that is an adjective. It is a state of, being it is a perspective 
you are against fascism. You are anti-fascist in your perspective and in your ideology individually. Um, or even if we're going to discuss it as a collective noun, then the core values of those who choose to don that moniker are simple and actually very easy to understand. They stand in opposition to fascism. Well, what exactly is fascism? Sometimes the, the idea of what that is might grow and change and flex and bend, but according to historian Robert Paxton, fascism, the motivating values of fascism include basically the right of a chosen group to dominate others without restraint from any kind of human or divine law. Hmm. At its heart, he says, fascism is about premising the needs of one group, often defined by race and ethnicity, over the rest of humanity. America first. Oops, I didn't mean to say. Yes, I did. I absolutely meant to say that. That is absolutely how that perspective gets started. America first. Yeah. Us first, then everyone else. And obviously, the, the America first perspective doesn't necessarily include that domination element. Um but again, slippery slope, right? Yeah. It, that is, you know, slippery slope is a fallacy that we don't want to get into. But you can recognize that the seed is planted with the America first ideology. Right. When you normalize approaching the world from America first, everybody else last, um, then it becomes much easier to take the next step of not only America first, but nobody else. And mm -hmm. if you're not American and you don't support us, you are our enemy. If you're not right. with us, you're against us. Yeah. And so. then, you know, if, if like kind of like Mussolini did, right, if, if it's Italy first, if it's Italians first, then what is Italy? What is Italian? And then you have to start Italian. defining those things. And um, and that's where things start to get very, very dangerous. Um, yeah. We've seen a lot of that, again, in its nascent stages when we're talking, when we're having these discussions about immigrants, you know, America is historically, factually a nation of immigrants. We are not the people holding you and I, we are not descended from the native peoples of this land. We're not. And the majority of the population is not native indigenous people. It is people who have immigrant immigrated here. So we're seeing a discussion about, you know, what is an American? Because historically, it's been immigrants. For better mm -hmm. or for worse, it has been people who did not originate in this land. But we're kind of seeing this transition over to modern-day immigrants are, for some reason, not Americans anymore. And you can see in, among some groups. Among some right. Groups. Obviously, I don't, I don't believe that. Disclaimer. Okay. I don't want that yeah. soundbite to be taken out of context here in 10 <laughs> years and used against me. Um, but like that is, that is the nightly mantra on certain networks. You right. hear it all the time. These immigrants are coming in, these immigrants, these others, the underlying implication of that is they are not Americans. They are not like us, which I don't think could be further from the truth, but people believe it because they don't see America in these people. They only see them as different from the America they grew up in. And it sort of plays into that America first ideology. It's another layer towards that. We, the in-group, we have the right to determine 
what these outgroups, these non-Americans should do or how they should live and where they should live and whether or not we should take them in. And it's just one little baby step at a time down this ideological pathway. All that to say is you can see when you think about it like that, and again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that that is factually true. That is just the argument that I can make for people to think that that specific campaign, America First, is on the pathway to fascism and not taking the first or second step, but several, several, several steps right. into that development. Yeah. It's, again, this is, like we were just saying a few minutes ago, these are characteristics, hallmarks that that anybody of any generation in America and in very many parts of the world will be able to pick out little pieces all along the way. We are not saying that America is on a direct path to becoming a fascist nation. What we're saying is that it's these foundational steps that lay that framework for a catalyzing event or a catalyzing uh, individual to come along and then things kind of skyrocket. So so if we're if we're talking about Antifa as an adjective, if we're talking about being anti-fascist as individuals and having an anti-fascist perspective, then our core values need to be opposing those things that that indicate fascism, opposing the tenets and the core premises of fascist perspectives. Hmm. Um, and I, I feel like that that is definitely one argument in the bucket of we are all anti-fascist, right? We are all Antifa. If you are not fascist, you are Antifa. Which is an, a, a conversation we had in the last episode. You should go back and listen to it right. if you haven't already. Yeah. Um, if you want, our real opinion, you know, on that and where we stand is definitely covered in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are not going to, again, if you are not pro-Antifa, big A, collective noun or proper noun, we are not calling you a fascist. That no. is not what we're doing. No. Um, but, and then, okay, so let's talk for a second about that proper noun perspective, though. If we're going to look at things from the assumption that there is one unified or even dominant Antifa group, then the closest thing that we might actually get to clearly outlined values is the points of unity that we just talked about laid out by the Torch Network. Um, mm -hmm. The Torch Network being this most organized iteration of what started as the Baldies and end as the, ended as the anti-racist action group and then kind of became this Torch Network as, as its reorganized self. Their, one of their tenets of membership in that network is their points of unity and your group has to agree to them. Um, and they're actually fairly simple. There are only five of them and I'm going to read them to you now. Ta-da! The first one is... <laughs> it's early, guys. The first one is, we disrupt fascist and far-right organizing and activity. That's going to be basically the most visible tenet of all of these. And that's where right. a lot of this tension that we hear in the media comes from. We've got protesters, we've got counter-protesters. It is, is one of... Uh... What is that far-right provocateur, his name? Milo Yiannopoulos. Oh, Yiannopoulos. Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah. So Antifa's... I don't know. Did we talk about that? They they successfully prevented Yiannopoulos from presenting at a college at one point 
like having his 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 show basically protested outside of of the event center where that was going to happen and prevented the presentation from going going off and of course of course that was immediately seen as a restricting my freedom of speech and my first amendment rights and it's like not how that works buddy that's just antifa is not the government therefore they cannot impede your first amendment rights because that only applies to the government that is 101 like it just is i think it's 101 yep yeah I'm, i'm actually really excited to talk about that next week um, tenant Point number number two. Number right. two. We don't rely on the cops or the courts to do our work for us. This doesn't mean we never go to court, but the cops uphold white supremacy and the status quo. They attack us and everyone who resists oppression. We must rely on ourselves to protect ourselves and stop the fascists. I mean, plain speak. Like this is not. This is not corporate speak, guys. This is not the uh, yeah, the language of a blunt. well-organized not-for-profit organization. <laughs> trying trying not to step on on toes here. Yeah. They're pretty it's pretty solidly in the uh, all cops are bastards camp. Yeah. And that's and actually that's um that's one really interesting hallmark of these anti-fascist groups and anti-fascist individuals is that very often they are anti-fascist and anti-law enforcement, which well, is... Well, if you go back to the history of it and you think about, especially like World War World War One and the black shirts, the law enforcement was the enforcement arm of the fascist movement mm-hmm. because they are directed by the government. And historically, I think you can make an argument for dictatorships and fascists regimes leveraging the military and law enforcement powers to uh, solidify their their own power their own political authority and crush any political opposition you see it you know in in russia right now the police basically arrest anybody who dares to protest Uh, there's been several arrests made for the protesters for navalny Um, in myanmar and the coup the military is uh, crushing any sort of opposition right now. Uh, in Uganda, the uh, fascist <laughs> president who's been in since, president, I say, quote, who's right. been in since like 1986 or 84. Our um, entire adult lives. Well, our entire oh, yeah. lives, basically. Yeah, literally our entire life, my entire life for sure. Um, you know, he just re-won <laughs> a, quote, fair election after arresting his political opponent. And the police are, I mean, literally the opposition to the current president is protesting in their own homes sometimes. And the police and the military are showing up to arrest them yeah. and, and, and stop that. So law enforcement historically has not been on the right side of history when it comes to fascism versus freedom <laughs> because because it is next necessarily a extension of the government and the government determines what is right and what is wrong and not necessarily ethically but at least legally and so i can understand this perspective that 
all police uphold white supremacy, all police uphold fascist, fascist ideologies. I don't think it's practically true. Right. Um, but as we sort of discussed, again, back in the systemic racism, there can be good cops that are unable to change the bad system. Mm-hmm. And if you don't speak out against the system that is bad, it doesn't matter how personally good you are, you are right. still supporting something that is overall bad. Um, no matter how hard you try on it, on a person-to-person basis to fix that. It's a very complicated topic that we've it touched is. on in a couple different forms. All of these points are going to be pretty sticky, which I think is why they're so bluntly worded. Yeah. They remove any doubt, any gray area, because that gray area, if they allowed it, would probably lead to inaction. They, they would spend so right. long trying to, to, to untangle, you know, is this cop, for example, is this cop a good cop and is this cop a bad cop? And should we, should we be against this cop and not this cop? It's a lot easier to be like, we just don't go to the cops. The courts, maybe. But even the courts, again, they're an extension of the government. So there's not a lot that they should rely on right uh the courts for yeah it's this this is why this is sticky um but hey there's no nuance no nuance in point of view duty number three (laughs) point of view number three says we oppose all forms of oppression and exploitation we intend to do the hard work necessary to build a broad strong movement of oppressed people centered on the working class against racism, sexism, nativism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and discrimination against the disabled, the oldest, the youngest, and the most oppressed people. We support abortion rights and reproductive freedom. We want a classless, free society. We intend to win. That last point, (laughs) we intend to win. It's not really a, a statement of, you know, this is how we're going to act. It's just, we're going to do it. We're going <laughs> to win. Interesting. It's, yeah. it's a little unlike the rest of the other things. We're just going to win. That's just yeah. all there is to it. it. It makes me feel like maybe this is a refined form of something and that that just kind of... Yeah, it got included. Got it kept at the it, kept at the end. Maybe there were, there were more action words in there. Maybe there were more words related to a fight or a struggle. Uh, right. And just got pared down to... We're going to win. We intend to win. This is definitely the sales pitch uh, point, I think. Right. Because like, if, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say this is, this is the, uh, the point on which pretty much all action taken in the name of anti-fascism rotates. Yep. This is, this is the axis <laughs> for sure. Because if you can't, if you can't personally identify with one of these groups, and having experienced something from one of these phobias, you definitely know somebody who has. Yeah. You know, like this is the net that brings people in. You know, do you, why should you be anti-fascist? Well, do you like racism? No. Sexism? No. Nativism? No. Anti-Semitism? No. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it sounds like you're an anti, anti-fascist to me. Right? Welcome to the club. Let's go. Welcome to uh, the collective noun. Yeah, the the club that doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the Cannot organized reiterate this 
enough, there is no big A Antifa. Whenever we say things like welcome to the club, there's no club. Right. Nobody's being getting a membership jacket. It is it is um very much akin to when you see the memes online of people like having intense emotional positive emotional reactions to animals and then you just see like the person with their fist raised that just says one of us. Like it's much yeah. more it's much more like that. Like, oh you also yeah. love dogs? We are Oh you also are watch one. cat videos? Oh, you yeah. also oppose nativism and anti-Semitism? One of us. <laughs> Whoa, hold on. This escalated real quick. <laughs> Dogs, cats, anti-Nazi. Done. That is basically a solid summation of my personality. <laughs> Actually, it's probably a lot of people. That's perfect. Uh, number four. We hold ourselves accountable personally and collectively to live up to our ideals and values. Pretty clear. There's not a whole lot to say about that. Yeah, I do want to circle back and talk about that one, but we're going to do that in a little bit, I think. Okay. And number five. And number five, we not only support each other within the network, but we also support people outside the network who we believe has similar aims or principles. An attack on one is attack on all. Ooh, that last part is so chilling to me because that is very similar to the QAnon where we go one, we go all. It is, and it's not unique to, to either of no. them, right? Uh-uh. Obviously, it's, it is a sort of backdoor way of creating an other, right? So you need an opponent if you're going to have any sort of movement, right? You can't just, you can't yeah. just have a movement against nothing. You have to have something to oppose. And by unifying, by saying we all move together, we are all together. You are also creating a they, like immediately. They are attacking us. The other is doing this. Mm-hmm. So it's not always bad necessarily. It's just one of those, like if, if this were a book and that were a narrative device, we would label it as foreshadowing. Right. <laughs> like it has the potential to be one of those things. So to me, just when I'm looking at an organization or a loosely affiliated group of people and actors, right, and they start talking as um, a collective like that, yeah, which is necessary when it comes to an organization, it's just it's always a, a, a signal post for me to be like, all right, how do they act as a collective? How do they view the collective? Right. And how do they view people outside the collective? Well, and it, it provides a very uh, convenient and actionable framework for that kind of um, disseminated group to coalesce. Hmm. So yes, we're completely disseminated most of the time, but if an attack on one is an attack on all, then suddenly someone can raise a standard and say, it's time. I'm, and I'm being oppressed. Right. And <laughs> then there can be some element of coordination. Not to say that like somebody's going to hold up a... a an Antifa flag somewhere in Portland and then like, (laughs) like everyone from all over the country is going to show up in black. But I think that that is, that's, um, that is a characteristic that a lot of the media coverage, especially the sensationalized media coverage relies on to, to oppose the idea of it being a decentralized 
group. Right. Yeah, there's a, uh, a, a bat signal aspect to that. Right. When we send up the flare, you are expected to respond. Which, it, like I said, it's not, in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's got the echoes of something right. that you're going to want to watch out for. And it in this is, context, it, it really does only apply to groups in the Torch Network because these are their points of unity that you have yeah. to agree with to be a part of their network. Right. It, it, yeah. And again, we're using the Torch Network because the anti-fascist ideology is uh, like a spiritual option <laughs> of the Torch Network. It, it both is the Torch Network and is other things at the same time. So it's not that something that we haven't actually made clear is that because of the massive decentralized nature of Antifa groups and ideologies, not all of them agree on the same definitions and the same action points and the same things. So what one group might consider actionable, another group might not. So that's something to keep in mind as you listen to us discuss right. these things. These are the ideas that we have been able to best distill that yes. best represent everything overall. But they're not necessarily gospel. They're more like guidelines. The coordinated Antifa groups ideologies are rooted in this assumption that the Nazi party would never have been able to come to power in Germany if people had more aggressively fought them in the streets in the 1920s and 30s. And that's according to the Anti-Defamation League, uh, which is an organization, organization that seeks to combat anti-Semitism specifically, but also just broadly other forms of hate. I am sure most people listening are familiar with the ADL or at least have heard of it before. I think understanding that rather, this, this sort of this thought process that we could have stopped Hitler if only the people had spoken out more aggressively in the decades that led up to Hitler or the decade. Understanding that is the key to understanding why Antifa does the things it does. Why Antifa does not say we're not going to be violent. Why Antifa, in fact, explicitly says violence is an option. It's on the table. I will punch a Nazi. Because it's this sort of cultural inside joke, I think, especially in America, but probably globally, to talk about, you know, what would you do if you could go back in time? Oh, I'd kill Hitler. Or I'd kill Hitler's right. mom or dad or whatever. It's basically, I would stop the Nazis. <laughs> and that is sort of this universally accepted, okay, yes, that's good. Stopping the Nazis is <laughs> right. good. No, you know, and we all kind of laugh at it. And even if the joke is something horrifying, like I would kill Hitler's mom, right? right. <laughs> We're all like, you know, you know, worth it. And we kind of write it off because it's not something that we visualize as being something that could happen. But because Nazis are this kind of universal enemy, you know, it's, it's always Nazis versus Indiana Jones. It's always safe to then hate historic Nazis. And because it's safe to hate the historic Nazis, it is therefore easier to justify actions against current Nazis. If you were convinced that you saw the next Hitler rising, either literally through a Nazi group or figuratively through a group that doesn't call themselves Nazis, but shares right. a lot of the same ideologies, right? What, what would you do to prevent it? What wouldn't you do to prevent it? The thing is, though, 
what exactly counts as a fascist and what counts as a as a, the next Hitler under these tenets that we've discussed and and under you know the ideas that we have found is largely open to interpretation since there's not really a defined checklist or organizational head saying what does and doesn't count each group each individual group kind of sets the standards so and to and to me and to robin that's where things get gets messy and that's where there's room for the wrong kind of intolerance all of this ideology this idea of fighting the next hitler um of of standing up against fascism i think i found a quote that kind of puts a nice bow on it and it's the idea in antifa is that we go where they right-wingers go that hate speech is not free speech that if you are endangering people with what you say and the actions that are behind them then you do not have the right to do that and so we go to cause conflict to shut them down where they are because we don't believe that nazis or fascists of any stripe should have a mouthpiece and that was uh anti-fascist actor uh scott crow giving that quote and I don't know how much more clear you can get. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the basic of, that is the basic ideology right there. But from a group perspective, when they are organized and from an individual perspective, when they're not, if you're endangering people with what you say and the actions that are behind that, then you don't have that right. And we will go to where you are and shut you down. So I wanted to go back to point number four really yeah. quick. And hit on this one because as much as I I think that there are strong arguments to be made about not tolerating Nazi-esque language and actions and ideologies, there and that the justification behind doing so is understandable, if not something that I fully agree with, this point actually gives me the most pause out of any of them for the Torch Network and anything. And that's this idea that they hold themselves accountable personally and collectively to live up to their ideals and values. Which sounds good. We have self-accountability. We are going to do the right thing. But it also means that they're the only judges. They're the only jury for when it comes to determining whether an action is right or wrong. And we have seen historically, time after time, that the people who are responsible for holding themselves responsible tend to justify a lot of things that might not be justified on a larger scale. Yeah. Right? Who watches The Watchmen? If you are the only group holding yourself accountable to something, you're, what you determine is acceptable might not align with what society has determined is acceptable. And then that puts you in contention with society. And that might make you a, a threat as great as the threat that you are opposing. Yeah, that it's, is it gets really messy. a very messy. dangerous place to be. It, yeah, it gets really messy when you, when you, take all of the tenets in number three, right? All of the things that they oppose. And you say, we hold ourselves accountable to opposing all of these things. 
But then who's making the checklist? Yeah. Who's saying this is and isn't racism? Who's saying this is and isn't sexism? Who is... Where is that consensus coming from? Right. Who Who's saying this is homophobia and this is transphobia and this is not? You get into this really sticky situation where an individual or a group's definition of homophobia or transphobia gives them personal permission to mm. then take decisive action and cause conflict in a situation when there is no objective definition of what is and isn't those things that they oppose in some cases there is a very objective definition and anybody who uh, anybody who looks at that situation the reasonable person standard right anybody who looks at that would say making people with black skin sit at the back of the bus is, is objectively racist Right. That passes that standard. But it's a little harder, especially when you get into some of the what we would consider to be the more modern cultural phenomena. Uh, my, my kid had a situation at school the other day where another kid um, messaged her. They... We go to the same mm. church as this. I'm starting to get, I'm already starting to get like sweaty. ready to go on your behalf. Right? So, like, well, someone came after your kid. I'm here for you. Well, Let's go. okay. And it, it gets really interesting because this is where we start to deal in nuance. So mm. we go to the same, um, the same churches as this particular young lady. And also my, my kid goes to the same school as her. And, and so they disagree. We we as a family disagree fundamentally with some of the uh, the perspectives that many people in our church hold, um, and mm-hmm. we're very clear about that with our kids. Um, but we also agree with enough things that we still think it's a valuable experience to participate, um, mm-hmm. and we make that very clear. They know very very clearly what we agree and what we don't agree with, but we don't necessarily walk into every church situation and uh, and announce those things very broadly right right right. Um, so they were having a discussion about something completely different at school they don't get along very well all the time and this young lady after the argument had ended about a different subject decided to use the the messenger function that they have open to them to message so f- the the scripture about homosexuality being a sin or, or one that they use to uh, to justify it. And my kiddos are very, very um, actively pro-LGBTQ stuff. We take a pretty hard line in our, our family that no individual person is um, is not worthy, that every individual person who they are is who they are, and we love them and we accept them the way that they are. That's a hard line in our house. Um, and so... She, the, she sent that that message to my kid and my kid was ready to fight like mm-hmm. absolutely ready to fight but we had to have this conversation about being willing to fight over things that are not objective things that are completely subjective that perspective is a subjective perspective and are you going to fight everyone with a subjective perspective regardless of whether or not it makes an actual impact on your life. It is one thing to say you are wrong or you are not okay or you are not deserving of rights. But it's a completely different thing to say 
I believe that this subjective piece of information says this thing, right? And so where yeah. then do you draw the line? If you take this perspective of we go to where you are and we cause conflict because we think that you are homophobic, then that's an automatic fight. Yeah. And I, I, I just, the, yeah. it gets really dangerous when you, when you try to walk that line in deciding where you where you bring conflict, not just where you respond to conflict if it comes to you, but where are you going to go and bring conflict in the name of anti-fascism? Right. I think, you know, to, to play Antifa advocate, I guess, I think the stakes are so high right. from, from that perspective, you know, that, that yeah, maybe one-on-one I have to determine whether or not it is worth responding to their subjective uh, opinion. But I also have to consider that it's not always one-on-one. You know, it's one-on-one here and one-on-one here and one-on-one here. And that's now three-on-one. And if I don't respond to any of these people, I'm letting that ideology go. That ideology is going to manifest as political action at some point. People will vote their beliefs, vote their ideologies. And that will, at some point, end up hurting people actually doing damage so is it worth my investment to to fight this person one-on-one and at least try to push back here and push back where i can and i'm obviously not telling you how to raise your kids well, at all right it's it, it's a conversation about how do you spend your energy right and, and where where is spending your energy going to have actual value right right um but it it's it is that's the trap and that's that's I'm not going to get too much into it because we're going to spend probably at least an hour just deep diving on this next time. But that's that's where that trap of tolerance versus intolerance comes intolerance in. Goes. Right. Like yeah. at what point is an individual allowed to have an opinion? Where where do we stop tolerating different subjective opinions? Because eventually they may lead to objective action yeah and that to me that's where this gets really dangerous like yeah when well, is tune it in okay next week everybody where we answer that question yeah. in easy to understand black and white terms with no variance or gray area we'll have no there's there's no gray in this conversation <laughs> no nuance necessary it's just nothing. yes or no nothing black yep, or white. we will we will answer that question when where is the line where do you start punching people we got it we have it down 100 yeah, percent Tune in next week for us to tell you when you have permission to punch people in the face. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Wouldn't There's no legal liability in that at all. Nothing. I'm not a lawyer. I think... We could... Yeah, we're running over again. Like Robin said, we're going to take a deeper dive next week into sort of the right and wrong of how we determine whether anti-fascist action is good, it's bad, what that effort is in, in our broader conversation about intolerance versus uh, tolerance and whether or not a society has to tolerate intolerance or whether or not the society has to actively not tolerate intolerance. In the meantime, if you want to let us know how right we got something or how wrong we got something, 
because those people tend to speak faster. You can reach us in multiple different ways. On social media, you can basically find us on by searching Fireside Breakdowns. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, we are on Twitter. If you want to shoot us a message there, we welcome it, we will gladly respond. If you want to send us an email, you can reach us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. And if you would like to leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate that. Even if you don't agree with everything that we say, if you like the way we present it, if you think this is value added to our political and social discourse, leave us that review. Every review you leave uh, brings new listeners to the podcast, which of course helps us get this conversation going on a broader level. Hopefully it is more beneficial and we think it is more beneficial the more people that listen to us. So we would greatly appreciate any ratings, uh, any reviews that you leave uh, if your platform allows it. You can find links to our show script slash notes where we have our sources on our Facebook page and as well as how to uh, leave us a review if you're not sure how to do that or if your platform allows it. And that's on our again on our Facebook page. So I think we're going to get some good news. And then we have one more Black History Month highlight to bring out because we started a week late. So we've got one more of those as well. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so good news. Uh, this week, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act again. Um, it did first pass in 2019, but it failed to make it all the way to the Senate. But the Equality Act basically amends the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include protections against discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, which is huge. It's a really, really, really big deal. It has been introduced every year since 2015, hopefully this year because we do have a um, slight majority in the Senate. It will actually maybe make it all the way through and those protections will be codified into actual law um, so that folks cannot be discriminated against based on their sexual identity or their gender identity. Mm -hmm. It passed in the House on a bipartisan vote, by the way. Uh, yes, a... a whopping three Republicans, I think it was, yeah. threw still. their support, but but still. Um, bipartisan and it, is bipartisan. It was yeah. bipartisan. It was not nearly as bipartisan. It was not bipartisan at all in 2019 when it passed. So, um, yeah. so that's again, that's a big deal, right? Bipartisan doesn't always mean everyone supports it. It just means that people have chosen to work together and, and come across the line. So that's an added like that. layer of good news to that good news. Absolutely. And then for our uh, Black History Month highlight, we're going to talk about Garrett Morgan. Oh, yes. He invented the three-light traffic light in 1923. With only an elementary school education, black inventor, and son of an enslaved parent, Garrett Morgan came up with several significant inventions, including an improved sewing machine and the gas mask. However, one of his most influential inventions was the improved traffic light. Without his innovation, drivers across the nation would be directed by a two-light system. Thanks to the successes of his other inventions, Morgan became the first black person in Cleveland, Ohio, to own a car. As a motorist, he witnessed a severe car accident at an intersection in the city. In response, he decided to expand on the current traffic light by adding a yield component. 
the yellow light, warning oncoming drivers of an impending stop. He took out the patent for the creation in 1923, and it was granted to him in 1924. So many lives saved, I think, by that yes. particular invention. Or many drag races started because yellow, everybody knows, means go faster so you don't have to stop at the red. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Especially where we, where we learn to drive. Yellow, yes. yellow means bury it. You can still make this. <laughs> so. Essentially, yes. That is everything for this week's episode. Let us know what you think. We will talk to you in one week. And until then, everybody take care of each other. Bye.